0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, the secret victims of the UK's war on Islamic State.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?
2: the UK was fighting a battle to retake the Iraqi city of Mosul from Islamic State. There were a few British troops on the ground, but mostly for the UK, it was an air war fought with jets and drones. And something about that war has always nagged at me.
1: Emma Graham Harrison is a foreign correspondent with The Guardian and Observer.
2: Britain dropped thousands of bombs and missiles on Mosul, And it claims, not a single one killed any civilians. Not a single one. The Ministry of Defense still claims that today, that its campaign against Islamic State in Iraq was a perfect war. The thing is, we don't believe this is true. And now, we have evidence.
1: A few years ago, the US military declassified the transcripts of hundreds of conversations of pilots operating drones above Iraq and Syria during the war against Islamic State. The nationalities of the pilots, whether they were British, American or from somewhere else, were all redacted. But the transcripts paint haunting scenes. There's one from late 2016. Inside their control room. The pilots can see ISIS fighters inside a building. They're ordered to fire. They launch a Hellfire missile, and the screen fills with smoke and debris. Only then do the pilots realise their mistake. They can see it on the screen. Two children, someone says. A new Guardian investigation has revealed those pilots were almost certainly British and that they were wrong. There were three children struck by that missile. A six-year-old girl named Tiber, who was killed instantly. Her three-year-old sister, Zara, who suffered lifelong injuries. A toddler named Ali, who was miraculously uninjured. And the children's mother, Enam Yunus, who was thrown to the ground and has never walked again. Six years after that strike, Emma went to Mosul in search of these secret victims of Britain's war.
2: So we have just come out of meeting and um, the woman who lost her oldest daughter, she hasn't even been able to bring herself to go back to visit her daughter's grave, even though she wants to. And listening to her tell the story, you can see, the damage that one missile can do and thinking about the fact that she's just one victim. You know, the UK used around 4,000 missiles across Iraq and Syria, you know, even if only 10% of them hurt civilians, there's hundreds more stories like hers, people whose lives have been ripped apart
1: by British weapons. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, exposing the myth of Britain's perfect war. Emma, tell me about the city of Mosul and what the city came to represent for Islamic State.
2: It was one of the great cities of Iraq. It was this wonderful melting pot of religions You had Sunni and Shia Muslims, you had Christians, you had this sort of this amazing centre, really, with a long, long history going back thousands of years. And when Islamic State swept in and took control of Mosul, it was symbolically incredibly important because they'd taken over the second biggest city in Iraq. They got a huge amount of money. Raqqa was their capital, but Mosul really was was another huge centre of gravity. And almost everybody will remember the day when the caliph Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi climbed up into the pulpit in a mosque and declared officially that a caliphate had been set up. That was in a historic mosque in the centre of Mosul. So it was in Iraq, really, their centre.
1: And by 2016, what was going on in this city that was so important to IS?
2: The the tide had turned against them. There had been this period in sort of 2014, the year they seized Mosul when they seemed almost unstoppable. They were now very much sort of on the back foot everywhere, being sort of hemmed in from all sides.
3: The major offensive to retake Iraq's second largest city from ISIS is underway right now. American warplanes and special forces are backing thousands of Iraqi and Kurdish fighters. They're moving on Mosul. ISIS seized the it seemed two-
2: clear by 2016 that the Iraqi state would reclaim Mosul. The question was how long would it take and what price would they pay?
1: The struggle to liberate the city from ISIS is now well into its 7th ruling month of street by street, house by house fighting.
0: The city's residents who can are frantically getting out of the battle zone. Right now though, the civilians feel under attack from everywhere.
2: And by that point, Islamic State, I think, they themselves probably understood that they were going to lose control of the city. And so what they were doing was digging in to make the battle for Mosul as difficult and as long and as bloody as they possibly could for the Iraqi army and and the Western troops that were backing them
1: up. And so what was that fighting like?
2: Urban warfare is always harder than sort of fighting in the countryside because streets, houses, buildings, you know, provide endless cover for people who are defending a city, defending an urban area. And the Islamic State were determined to make it as difficult as possible.
0: Urban warfare on a momentous scale, caught below hundreds of thousands of civilians.
2: So they dug themselves in, they laced the city with booby traps. You know, they'd got very, very good at making sort of homemade bombs, so sort of mines, things attached to doors in streets. They had whole sort of ad hoc factories producing different types of vehicle bombs, car bombs, truck bombs. You know, they'd have suicide drivers to go and attack the advancing Iraqi troops on the ground. So the city was full still of civilians.
1: Nearby, a car bomb detonates.
3: And look over here. You can see children running, children playing. This war is happening
1: on people's doorsteps.
2: While we were doing the reporting for this piece, we met many people who had sat out of the war. They were extremely traumatised by it. The experience had been horrific. In the city, there were both people forced to stay by Islamic State to act as human shields, and people who'd weighed up their terrifying options and and for whatever reason decided that it was less dangerous or less frightening to stay at home and hope that the fighting would, would pass them over.
1: And so for Western forces, the battle for Mosul was mostly an air war. Emma, given what you've told us about the fact that this city was packed with civilians, many of whom had no option but to stay, how did that affect the way that Western forces were conducting their bombing campaign?
2: So we've had more than 20 years since drones were first introduced. And and this wasn't just a drone war as well. There were planes flying sorties over the city. In that time, you know, there has been pressure on Western forces. They have refined their targeting methods. They have what are meant to be safeguards in place to prevent them hitting civilians. If they think they see a civilian, generally they will halt the strike and I'd say that's the sort of dream of precision warfare, that you identify your target, you kill them with a perfectly aimed missile, and no one else is hurt. The problem is that in a war like the battle for Mosul, that's just not a realistic scenario. For a start, you have, you know, dozens, perhaps hundreds of targets a day. You know, it was a fast-moving front line. And so people were sort of choosing targets, selecting targets, you know, with, with really very little little notice. And of course, what you have in a situation like the battle for Mosul is lots and lots of room for error
0: this weekend Pentagon officials confirmed the US was involved in an airstrike in Mosul that is under investigation the decision came after at least 100 people were killed by a huge explosion US officials this weekend confirmed the military did launch an airstrike in the area on the same day but they said they're still investigating if their airstrike was to blame
1: and so How many errors were there? How many civilians did this coalition of Western forces admit to killing?
2: So the coalition has admitted to killing 455 civilians in Mosul. The British government, the British military authorities, claim that they did not kill a single civilian.
1: How can that be right? I mean, they were dropping hundreds, possibly thousands of bombs across this campaign, they say they killed nobody?
2: Well, exactly, Mike. I mean, it's just utterly improbable. You know, it's it's a claim that is not credible. And it's not true. And I think, you know, if you want to get to the heart of, of how improbable this Number is, I spoke to a very senior retired British military official, um, a man called Greg Bagwell, who's a retired Air Marshal, and who spent quite a lot of time talking me through the very extensive protections that the British military, the British Air Force have in place to, to prevent civilians being targeted, which he says are absolutely gold standard. Some of the best in the world. He's very proud of them. And even he admits that this position, that there was not a single targeting error, over years, in which Britain claims to have killed thousands of militants was a stretch. And, and he said to me, if we were saying we were 90% better than everyone else at protecting civilians, that might be a credible argument. When you keep saying the number is zero, and therefore we're 100% perfect, it clearly becomes hard to sell that.
1: Okay, so you have this premise that just doesn't stand up to scrutiny, that Britain's war in Mosul was a perfect war. And so you set out with some colleagues to try to dig into it. What did you do?
2: So perhaps the country which ironically has been most transparent is the US. And a really important source of documents was released there after a freedom of information um, request by a, a brilliant researcher called Asma Khan, who was working with the New York Times. And we got over 1,300 documents, which are from the investigation centre that the coalition set up to look into civilian casualties. And these provide basically details of the investigations of what happened. Um, In some cases, transcripts when drone operators have realised they've made a mistake, they've realised they've killed civilians. So these are very detailed documents. The countries responsible are redacted. So we don't know which country carried out these attacks. But what we hope to do was to take these very detailed documents And compare them with the information that we had from Britain, which included these regular updates on where the British military had been carrying out airstrikes and what their targets were. And those were released to Air Wars, which is a investigative non-profit organisation that we work with for this investigation under a Freedom of Information request in the UK. And so we essentially brought those pieces of information together and tried to cross-check them against each other.
1: Right, so you're taking these American reports of the time and place of all the airstrikes that may have killed civilians and then you're comparing it to British reports of the time and place of of their airstrikes. And when you put them together, they start telling you something. They start telling you which British airstrikes might have killed civilians.
2: Exactly. It allows us to at least find a few cases where all these different pieces of information come together And we could find Iraqis whose families had been killed by airstrikes that we are pretty confident were carried out by British forces because I think part of the reason the government is able to maintain this wall of silence is that these are abstract deaths, abstract losses, and we wanted to go and try and find the people, the families who who were affected by British bombs, British missiles. Right. So. so late last year, we went to Mosul. We're on our way to Mosul this morning. Um, it's myself, Joe Dyke from Air Wars, Salam Habib, an Iraqi journalist we're working with, and our driver who doesn't want to be named. And so far, it's been pretty smooth. We've had one checkpoint leaving Kurdish-controlled territory, coming into Iraqi-controlled territory. Mosul today is a very different city from what it was even a couple of years ago. The Iraqi government has consolidated its control over the city, um, hasn't rebuilt the roads entirely yet. You can (laughs) still hear the rattling, but um, there's still a lot of demining and rebuilding work going on. We are going to meet relatives of people who were killed by an airstrike in 2017 an airstrike that we are almost certain as certain as you can be without official confirmation was carried out by british forces
1: Emma we started this episode talking about Enam a woman who was struck along with her three children by what your reporting suggests very strongly, was a British airstrike. But in Mosul, you looked at another case there. Tell me about it.
2: So the other case we looked at in some ways seemed to be more open and shut because the Brits claimed that day they'd hit a vehicle bomb factory, a factory making suicide bombs out of trucks and cars. And the coalition accepted that 14 civilians had died. But when we went to the coordinates they'd given we found that there was just a building site there. And looking back at Google Maps, there had been a sort of wasteland at the time of the strike in 2017. And so clearly that wouldn't have been a target. You wouldn't have targeted an empty wasteland and thought that you were hitting a vehicle bomb factory. And equally, you wouldn't think that you'd killed civilians if your bomb landed in the middle of this sort of scrubby patch of empty land. We've come to the site of the coalition coordinates, which is a mosque that was blown up by Islamic State. And the street, apart from that, is, is pretty intact, right, Joe? I mean, we've just... Yes. And so we're kind of left with this conundrum, right, where that does seem to match the date matches, the number of dead matches. It sort of matches up in a lot of ways, but it just doesn't match at all the description that coalition gave, supposedly based on their video of a IED factory, so we're just trying to find the only other site that we'd identified, sort of within a half a kilometer radius, that's looking like it had bomb damage, major bomb damage, around the time of the this airstrike.
1: So, following the coalition's own coordinates, he went to this site, but. There was no evidence there of a car bomb factory or indeed of any kind of missile strike. So if the missile didn't hit that lot, where did it hit?
2: So that's the interesting thing. I mean, you know, you come back to this lie of precision warfare. When we started asking people around that neighbourhood, have you heard of a civilian casualty incident? Do you know, you know, in spring, in early March 2017, Almost all of the people who had been there at the time, of course, many people had left, they said, oh, yes, that's the family of Nazim Abdul Rahman. They were killed in their house. And they said, yeah, it was, it was pretty much the worst civilian casualty incident in this small neighborhood.
1: So they tell you, well, there was a missile strike around that time. It did kill civilians, but not here, somewhere else.
2: Right. It was about 250 meters away. And so what did you do next? Before we went to Mosul, there's sort of Facebook groups and notice boards for bereaved survivors, for people to look for relatives, seek support, talk to each other. And so we put messages on some of these groups um, to say that we were looking for survivors of, of the particular strikes that we'd identified. And we had been put in touch with a woman called Badour. assalamu alaykum. We met Badur and... It was her family, her parents, her brother and sister, her sister-in-law and her two nephews, who were the victims of this strike. Welcome. Thank you. Should we all sit together?
1: So this British strike that appears to have been hundreds of metres off target, it hit Badur's family. What happened to them?
2: They were sheltering in their house, hoping that the fighting would pass and the strike, you know, these are huge bombs that it brought down three houses, essentially on top of them. So three houses in a row. Some of them were killed instantly.
3: Then I discovered all all my family were killed. At that time, I feel there's a fire inside my heart. It was horrible. Minutes, horrible time. Her
2: brother survived for two days under the rubble and was begging for help. And the Islamic State fighters refused to let them bring in heavy equipment to clear the rubble and get to him. And without it, they just couldn't reach him. So I think six of them were killed instantly. Her brother survived for two days and then died.
1: God
3: yeah they were a very poor family but my dad was like joking I can't describe my mother. we were friends we are... Please, I'm so sorry if it's too painful.
2: Yeah, yeah, so we wait for. It. herself was, an incredibly, gracious woman who, you know, had agreed to talk to us about this this trauma. But in many ways, I would say, was still. Trapped in the past, she and her husband had been unable to have kids and she said, you know, I've I've essentially lost all my family because I've not been able to have children, I can't look to the future. And, you know, she's someone for whom the grief and trauma of that moment over six years ago is is still, in a way, she's still sort of trapped in the tragedy and the horror of that moment.
1: Emma, the coalition claimed this strike on Badur's house – had been targeted at a car bomb factory. What did Badur think of that?
2: So there's one story that's given in the sort of coalition investigation into what happened, which is that they were targeting a car bomb factory, that when they destroyed the car bomb factory, which obviously, as you would imagine, would be full of explosives, it set off a shockwave which detonated a vehicle bomb further down the street, which brought down a house that bears absolutely no resemblance to what happened. So her family lived in in part of old Mosul, this sort of warren of historic buildings, mostly down very narrow alleys, including the one that her parents lived on. I mean, you could barely get a car down it. You know, the idea that someone would be making vehicle bombs down there was clearly just not possible, not true. And what the neighbours said had happened that Islamic State fighters had taken up positions on rooftops, not on the roof of their family home but a house a couple of doors down and everybody worried about that because when that happened it was quite often followed either by bombs or by missiles you know artillery or whatever Badur herself wasn't there she was living with her husband's family she begged her family to leave the old city because it was a scene of really bad fighting and her father just decided that he'd rather take his chances at home so they'd gone back
3: but in this area there, the neighborhood, it was old one. It's very narrow streets. No, The cars can't enter. How can they build a factory and the cars can't enter? So we confirmed completely there was no factory there. And I know the place and we will go there and show you the places and the, all the area. So
2: Badur actually took us to the ruins of, of where her family house used to be, which is just still... Pretty much as it was a couple of years ago, some of the rubble's been cleared away, but otherwise it's just an an empty space. And I understand, is this the first time that she's come back here since it happened? Yeah, it's
3: first time for me to come here. I can compare that small house, beautiful house, become nothing. And
2: one of the things she said to us that was... You know particularly heartbreaking, she was sort of looking around and said, "You know my my family are mixed with this with this soil because she wasn't able to go back and collect the bodies for seven months, and so by the time she got there, really all that was left was was their bones
3: they are mixed with soil, my family and the soil is together."
2: so we're just leaving Mosul after a long and very sad day Um, Badur took us to the site of the airstrike the details don't really match with at all with what the coalition statements claim that they were hitting a IED factory it's slightly different location from, from the coordinates given by the coalition so we're a bit confused by that but the fundamental tragedy of, of the airstrike that has actually been made clearer than ever, really, by today, yeah, so talking so to Badr. So, like, yeah. She was a woman whose life really seemed, in many ways, to have stopped on the day that almost all her family were killed by this um, single bomb. Um, and, you know, six years on, her her life hasn't really recovered.
1: Emma, it's been six years since that attack on Badour's family home. Has she or has anyone in her family received any acknowledgement from the UK or the coalition that they were responsible for this attack?
2: No, and this is one of the things that makes me angry, actually. You know, I understand that Syria is still a live battlefield. Um, It's very difficult to go there and investigate these things. But actually, Mosul now is relatively safe. You know, we had a lot less information than presumably coalition investigators would have. It would not be hard for them to go to the sites of these presumed civilian casualties or send investigators to try and find out what had happened, to try and find out who was affected. And, you know, in in the case of both Enam and Badur, compensation could make a significant difference to their lives. You know, potentially it might allow Badur to seek fertility treatment, perhaps to have children. Um, For Enam, you know, she wants to send her kids to a better school. She has an incredibly uncomfortable wheelchair. She starts a lot of shrapnel in her legs and can't afford operations to get it removed. You know, of course, both of them said nothing. Nothing really goes anywhere near bringing back, you know, lost parents or children, but actually compensation might help them address some of the pain and trauma that they are living with as a result of these these airstrikes. And no, nobody has been in touch with them.
1: And I guess to get compensation, the British government would have to accept that yes, it was their airstrike that killed Badour's family. In the absence of that, we're left with Badour's story and this British claim that there were zero civilian casualties from their war in Mosul. Do other countries in the coalition approach it the same way? Do they also claim that they killed nobody? Or or is the UK an outlier?
2: Well, that's really interesting. So there's a bit of a division. There are other countries that have also claimed and continue to claim that their targeting was perfect. But some countries in the coalition, I mean, particularly America, has accepted, of course, I think almost all campaigners on this issue think that the number of deaths the US has accepted, 455 in Mosul, is an underestimate of how many civilians it killed. But there is at least acknowledgement that the targeting and civilian protection systems are not perfect. There's been other countries where journalism has pushed authorities to accept their responsibility. So I'd say it's a mixed bag. There are some countries that were part of the coalition that maintain essentially a position very similar to the British one. But there are also countries which have done more to take responsibility. I don't think any of them has done as much as people would like. I think, you know, we come back to this this point that nobody's even gone to Mosul to look on the ground for survivors.
1: And why do you think the UK and some others are taking this approach, this kind of bury-our-head-in-the-sand approach to civilian casualties?
2: Mike, that's a very good question to which I don't know the answer. I mean, there's there's several possible explanations. One, if you want to be extremely cynical, it's just that they don't want to have to deal with either the cost or the political and emotional fallout of accepting civilian casualties, you know, we've seen again and again in Afghanistan, previously in Iraq, the deaths of civilians, you know, rightly makes people angry, both in Iraq and in the UK, that that innocent people are being killed, you know, in the name of a quote unquote just war. So it may be to sort of try and avoid that public anger. I would personally say that's a very short term view because We have seen again and again in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think historically in almost any war that you can think of, civilian casualties are absolutely known to be one of the most powerful recruiting sergeants really for an enemy, for an army. You know, one of the main reasons people join up to fight is because they want to protect the people they love or they want to avenge them, you know? So I don't know. Is it a sort of misguided? sense of pride and arrogance which again we've we've seen many times from our government from our military do they genuinely think that we are so good at this that we can fight a war in a complex urban environment we can kill thousands of islamic state militants and not kill a single civilian i mean it sounds absolutely extraordinary
1: Emma, has anyone in the UK Parliament pushed back on the British government's claim that they have no evidence of any civilian casualties from Mosul?
2: Yeah, I mean, there has been, a, you know, consistent pressure on the government. People have been asking for a long time, including MPs, about this very implausible, perfect record, but the government has essentially been kind of stonewalling, really. So well,
3: is I was very careful, I hope, to... Remind the House
2: that this is war. While we do everything in, as a coalition to try and minimise
3: the risk of civilian casualties, uh, it's not possible to eliminate that risk entirely. Um, I'm not uh, claiming that uh, it might never be the case, but so
1: far no evidence has been presented uh, to us. But is there no evidence because there's no evidence, or because they haven't gone to look for the evidence?
2: Well. I would say they haven't gone to look for the evidence and that it's it's pretty clearly there. And, you know, there's a history of the British military not doing this. You know, the Chilcot report, which was the big investigation into the disastrous 2003 invasion of, of Iraq and the occupation that followed, specifically said that, that Britain was not doing enough to try and track civilian casualties and that in future conflicts it needed to do more. And I would argue that that recommendation has just been completely ignored because as we've shown, it was quite easy to go to Mosul and to find these survivors. You know, these were close-knit communities. These weren't soldiers on a front line or refugees. These were people killed in and around their homes in many cases. And it is not impossible, not even that difficult to find them. You know, we had less information than obviously than the coalition would have if they went back. And it took us a few hours to find these two cases. Of course, if you're talking about thousands of deaths, that's a lot of time. But if you think about the resources we put into prosecuting this war, you think we could put a tiny fraction of that into understanding, compensating the civilians who were injured and the survivors of those who were killed.
1: Mm, the evidence is there if we want to find it. Absolutely. Coming up, it's almost certain that the UK government killed civilians in Mosul. So, what does it owe the survivors?
2: So we've just got to the cemetery where all of Badur's family are buried. And it's a huge, huge graveyard. I mean, you look in every direction and there are... as well as the city of the dead.
1: Emma, it's been over six years since that attack on that row of houses that changed Badur's life forever. How is she coping now? So, I mean, Badoa
2: herself said she she doesn't see a difference, really, between life and death, that she lives for her weekly visits to the cemetery to go and talk to, be at the graves of her family.
3: I ask Ghanem to bring me here to the Grave, you know, just to crying and feel more relaxed. This is a habit nowadays and I am I'm 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 obliged to do it each Thursday.
2: And do you is there any rituals you do? Do you make any offerings to them or do you talk to them or do you pray or you just sit here to be with them? <laughs>
3: Besides the praying, I always cook some food and I distribute the food which they used to loved, like dolma and other kind of food.:
2: And I mean this is a personal question. I please feel free you don't have to reply, but my my grandmother, after she died, my mother liked to sometimes just talk to her. I wondered, is, is there anything like that? Do you sometimes feel they're here or talk to them at all?
3: Yes, when wants to say something, Exactly. I'm doing the same. When I come here, I speak to them and inform me and in the update. I am, like update them what's happening here. Someone dies, someone join you, someone you have a wedding. So I keep updating them. <laughs>
2: I think it's pretty hard for almost anybody in listening to this in Europe or America to really understand the magnitude of her loss, you know, in a single day to lose both your parents, two siblings, two nephews, your sister-in-law, in these absolutely horrific circumstances. It It's absolutely devastating. And as she said herself, because she has not been able to have her own children, she's not able to think of her family continuing in that way, see her parents in her own children, and she feels, I think in many ways, trapped in the past and in this moment of this absolutely tragic, horrific loss.
1: And is there anything that could give her a pathway out? I mean, something that the UK government could do to compensate her for this strike in which so many members of her family were killed?
2: I mean, I think again and again over years of speaking to survivors in war zones, in other difficult situations, you know, justice, recognition, acknowledgement can be incredibly important. I think just. Acknowledgement of what happened, recognition of the loss is often in itself meaningful. And then compensation can make a meaningful difference. You know, money isn't just a token recognition of what these women have lost. It's also potentially a way to address at least a small, small part of the trauma and suffering and loss that those airstrikes caused.
1: But while the UK sticks to this claim that Badur's family could not have been killed by a British bomb, there's no chance of getting that compensation.
2: No. And in fact, very cruelly, there's a new law which was passed a few years ago, which gives survivors of things like this abroad only six years from the date of the attack to claim compensation. So, you know, in a way, these years of denial and obfuscation have have run down the timer, even if the British government turned around tomorrow and said, actually, yeah, that was us, we did that. Theoretically, legally, it's it's beyond the window in which she could claim compensation, which seems very cruel and very illogical.
1: Did Badour have any message that she wanted you to give to the UK government?
2: You know, I, I think she said she just wanted people to know she said people should know what the british government is doing Um, and i think that goes to the heart really of of why i'm doing this reporting too you know we live in a democracy and we have a right and a responsibility to know when civilians are being killed in our name
1: emma thank you for your work and for sharing it with us
2: thank you for speaking to me
1: about all of this That was Emma Graham Harrison, a senior foreign correspondent with The Guardian and Observer. You can read her stories as part of this investigative series at theguardian.com. A spokesperson for the UK Minister of Defence said There is no evidence or indication that civilian casualties were caused by strikes in Syria and Iraq. The UK always minimises the risk of civilian casualties through our rigorous processes and carefully examines a range of evidence to do this, including comprehensive analysis of the mission data for every strike. They added, We acknowledge that risk can never be entirely removed, especially given the ruthless and inhumane behaviour of adversaries deliberately using human shields, but no evidence has been identified in these instances. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser with help from Mabel Banfield-Unwachi. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we'll be back tomorrow.
0: This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?